0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's patreo dot com notseenradio. Thank you. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, I up my indie cred considerably when I get to sit down with ordained pastor and best selling author Nadia Bowles Weber. We talk about her recent book, Accidental Saints Finding God in All the Wrong People, and what it's like to pastor a church of weirdos and normal people in Denver, Colorado. Stay tuned. This is things not seen. I'm David Dault. Our guest today is ordained Lutheran minister and author Nadia bowles weber She's the founding pastor of the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado. She's the author of Salvation on the Small Screen: Twenty Four Hours of Christian Television, published by Seabury Press in two thousand eight, and the New York Times best-selling theological memoir Pastrix: The Cranky, Beautiful Faith of a Sinner and Saint, published by Jericho Press in two thousand thirteen. Now she's back with a new set of essays entitled Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People from Convergent Press. Reverend Bowles-Weber is a highly sought-after speaker, and you can find her sermons online at the Patheos Progressive Christian blog, where she writes under the handle Sarcastic Lutheran. Reverend Nadia Bowles-Weber, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Thanks. Happy to be here.
0: So I'm going to start with a strange question. In, in 1988, I was at the Metroplex in Atlanta at a Fishbone concert. Mm-hmm. And Angelo, the lead singer of yes, Fishbone, yes, I yeah, was like yeah. I've been in
1: a hotel with him. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> he, did, he did what at the time was called the Fishbone Familyhood speech, and he he climbed up onto the second-story balcony yeah. of, of the Metroplex, and he started doing that chant where he goes, peace, love, respect for everybody. Peace, love, respect for everybody. Yeah. And after doing that for about a minute and a half, he jumped, and the crowd caught him. Like, oh, everybody reached oh, up and yeah. caught him. Yeah. Okay, fast forward then, 10 years or so to around 1999 in Athens, Georgia, a Guided by Voices show. And I'm there in the crowd watching what's happening, and there's a guy that gets up, and he, you can tell he's a little inebriated, and he climbs up on stage. He's about to stage dive, and he goes, and he takes a run, and he jumps, and the crowd, instead of surging forward, surges back, and he face plants on the ground. <laughs> Now, for me, this is a metaphor of ministry, okay? Yeah. It's it's easy to surge forward and catch mm-hmm. the people that are saying peace, love, respect for everybody. Mm-hmm. And then there's something in us that wants to pull back mm. when the person is a little messed up. Mm-hmm. And more than anything else that I have read recently, your book, Accidental Saints, kind of brought me to that place of thinking about that. That struggle hmm. for ministers to hmm. try and love the people that are maybe a little messed up, hmm. and I wonder if we could start there and kind of talk about your experience of trying to to be present for people that maybe you kind of want to pull back from.
1: Yeah, I mean that's it's the um, it's the hardest part of ministry for me because there's a foundational truth about church, and that is that church isn't for the winners. It's for the losers. I mean, so you're not going to get the sort of shiny, at least in my parish, you're not going to get the like shiny successful, totally have their stuff together and um, really uh, you know, good with social skills and you know, highly successful. I mean, you might have a few of those characteristics, but then they're going to have something else sort of that is wrong about them. So like, we do have like highly successful people like CEOs and you know, statewide elected officials, but who su- suffer from like horrible anxiety and depression, right? Or we, you know, so I think we have like always. There's going to be something wrong with the people who are showing up because people don't show up because everything's fine, and so that's just what you get when you're doing church, right? I think, you know, I mean, in my opinion, but it ends up being the hardest part of my job because I'm not this sort of nurturing. I just I just want to love everyone kind of person, you know, at all. Like, there are some people I don't like. And so to have to, to minister to them is a huge challenge. But I feel like there's so much to be had in terms of learning about myself and learning about God by being in the muck of it with people I wouldn't choose out of a catalog.
0: I know that a lot of our listeners are going to be familiar with you and your work. But maybe for, our, for the sake of our listeners who aren't familiar with you, How would you give, as a brief self-description, kind of how do you describe yourself?
1: I'm a church planter, so I started a congregation when I was in seminary. And really it was because um, I kind of had to start a church I'd want to show up to. Mm -hmm. There aren't a lot out there that I'd be eager to, to show up to. Not that they're doing something wrong, but I just look around the room and no one looks like me. Like, my friends aren't hanging out there. Like, we have to culturally commute from who we are to who the church is a lot of times, and we're not going to do that. So I just started a church, and it ended up attracting a particular type of person at the beginning, and then that that exploded. And now there's this bizarre diversity to it. Like, you walk in now and you look around you go, I am unclear what all these people have in common, because you'll... You'll have somebody who's like a recovering heroin addict next to a statewide elected official, next to a soccer mom, next to a transgender woman, next to a lesbian couple with their new baby. I mean, it's just it. they don't match, you know. So it, it became something so much more than what I originally anticipated it was going to be, and I've had to adjust ever since. And it's it's weirder than I thought it was going to be. Like I thought it would be weird because it was just the kind of like recovering alcoholics and drag queens, right? Now it's much weirder because we have like baby boomers from the suburbs and soccer moms along with the recovering addicts and the, and the drag queens. So it's 10 times weirder now than I ever thought it would be.
0: And you used a phrase just a second ago, this notion of, of um, the cultural commute, or you, you said to culturally commute. Could you explain kind of what you mean by that? When you say when we come to church, we have to culturally commute.
1: There's just a cultural wrapping around so much mainline Protestantism especially, which is what I know the most, is that um, it has a cultural wrapping around it. So you're expected to dress up a little and there's sort of nicey-nice chit-chat and there's a slight formality to it. And the humor is just very, very surface humor. You know, it's not anything edgy or ironic or, you know, and I, I like feel at home in irony. So for me to have my irony and my religion served together, I'm actually really comforted by that. So like for instance, right now, if you go into House for All Sinners and Saints, you walk through the door, we've propped up this big black velvet painting of Elvis, like with a microphone like singing, but also with a tear running down his face. And it says, Elvis welcomes you to House for All Sinners and Saints. Why? Because it just made sense to have it. You know, it just like totally made sense for us to like put Elvis out there to welcome people. We didn't think too hard about it. We thought it was funny. We just put it out there. Um, it's just not something you would see necessarily in a lot of churches because they have to maintain this very particular sort of respectability, and they don't—a lot of things don't mix there. And we we feel fine mixing all kinds of weird things.
0: There's there's a lot that, that you just said that I kind of want to, to think about. Let's talk a little bit about about your background. Were you raised yourself in a faith community?
1: Oh, very much so. It's all I really knew. I mean— I, Three times a week we went to church, but we went to this sort of fundamentalist church. Uh, it was very sectarian in the sense that, like, they, we really were taught that we were the only real Christians. You know, we, only people who believed and practiced exactly like we did, very, very exactly like we did, w- would be going to heaven. And so I'd have a new friend, and my, you know, my preacher would say, "Oh, well, uh, is your new friend Stacy a Christian?" And I'd have to say, "Oh, no, she's she's a Baptist." Because they are really, nobody else is really Christians, right? So it was a little weird, you know, and women weren't allowed to pray out loud in front of men, and uh, much less be preachers or ministers of any any sort. Um, You didn't have the authority to hand, to pass a man a collection plate as an usher. You couldn't even be an usher, but you did have the authority to pass that same man a plate of fried chicken and potato salad at the church dinner, you know, after church. So, you know, what what kind of plates you could hand other people that was very prescribed for women? (laughs)
0: and And so, in you you pulled back from that from that type of community and and so I'm going to just do a quick quote here from the Daily Mail, uh, an interview uh, from a few years back, um, a couple of lines about your past. As a teenager, she felt that she never quite belonged and turned to drink and drugs for about a decade. But she says she never stopped believing in God. And it was during her recovery that she met a Lutheran seminary student named, Matthew Weber, who brought her back to church. And I realize that you don't like to talk much about your your family, and I respect that. But to the extent that you feel comfortable talking about this experience, I wonder if you could uh, elaborate, reflect, or correct those few lines that I just read from the Daily Mail.
1: I think it's pretty accurate. I, I mean, being raised... Look, it's like a really recent idea in human history that you can just choose your symbol system. You know? And so... I, who I am, how I see the world, everything about me was very much formed within a very particular symbol system, the Christian one. And so to leave that entirely behind, there was a pain to that. There was such a huge loss to that, even though for my own mental and spiritual health, I had to make that choice at the time. So in a way, coming back, circling back to Christianity in a form in which I could just be myself and I didn't have to remove half my brain to say I believed the things and all of that, was ten times more liberating than leaving it to begin with. And so when I found uh, a form of Christianity that uh, just totally made sense to me, I very much made a home there. I mean, basically, Lutherans gave me language for what I'd already experienced to be true in my life. So I... I have this enormous capacity for destruction, both of myself and other people. But then I also have an enormous capacity for kindness. Both these things are true. And then the Lutheran said, well, of course it's true. You're simultaneously sinner and saint, like 100% of both all the time. And I just thought, well, thank you. Like, that actually makes sense because I see it in front of me, like in myself and other people all the time. So they weren't these weird concepts I had to try to believe. They were... They were the things that were pulled into the dirt right in front of me, and I couldn't deny it. It was the greater insanity to say it wasn't true.
0: If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Nadia Bowles Weber. She's the founding pastor of House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Accidental Saints, Finding God and All the Wrong People, published by Convergent in 2015, and the New York Times bestselling theological memoir, Pastrix, the cranky, beautiful faith of a sinner and saint. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. LitPress books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Nadia Bowles-Weber. She is the founding pastor of the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado. We're discussing her new book of essays, Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People. Well, and in the book, you talk about having sort of a gallery of saints there in the House for All Sinners and Saints. And, and some of those saints, I mean, they include Cesar Chavez, if I if I mm-hmm. read correctly, but also some people that you may not necessarily expect to see in a – a kind of a a gallery of saints. It's almost a rogues gallery of saints. Is that a fair way of characterizing it?
1: Well, I think any gallery of saints would be a rogues gallery of saints. Why is that? I mean, we know them really well enough. I mean, my whole thing about people being accidental saints is I think what we should be celebrating is God's ability to get redemptive stuff through... Uh, done through broken people rather than people. Some people have the ability to be super godly. It's like, I don't know if you know him well enough. I doubt that that's really true. So I think that we're all the all kind of broken hobbling along sort of uh, individuals, but somehow God gets really beautiful things done through us, which is crazy, right? That's what we should be celebrating is what God can accomplish rather than what we can accomplish.
0: In a lot of what you say about the way that you believe, you talk about the difference between a kind of intellectual theological knowledge and lived behavior. And that really just came out in, in some of the things that you've been saying. This is not about getting your theology correct. This is not about becoming a, a good a good abstract theologian. This is about finding ways to live with other broken people. Am I hearing that correctly?
1: Yeah, which makes it weird that I'm a Lutheran because Lutherans basically believe in salvation through theological precision. But it ha- for me, it has to be, like I say, pulled into the dirt of actual lived reality for it to matter. Otherwise, it's just an idea. And ideas don't save us. You know, I mean, it has to be something that connects heaven and earth You know, in a real way.
0: So in light of what you were just saying about, uh, about Lutheranism being uh, a home for you that you found, I came across this quote uh, from Philippians 3, and I wanted to read it, and I wanted to get your reaction to it. For many, as I have often told you, and now tell you even in tears, conduct themselves as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly." Their glory is in their shame. Their minds are occupied with earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we also await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will change our lowly body to conform with his glorified body by the power that enables him also to bring all things into subjection to himself. Now, when I was reading your book, Accidental Saints, I found myself coming back to this uh, writing from Paul in Philippians again and again because I see you talking about this process, people that are ruled by their bellies, Mm -hmm. learning instead to be ruled in some way by love Mm -hmm. or to be loved back into being somebody. And I'm just wondering, as as you think about your work as a pastor, uh, it seems to me like that dynamic is very important to you. I wonder if you could maybe reflect on that a little bit.
1: Well, it's interesting because I think the church has tried to be a sort of sin management behavior program for people Mm -hmm. uh, to to sort of make people into what they see as being good people by giving them lots of rules and guidelines and you have to live a certain lifestyle and you speak a certain way and you Mm -hmm. look a certain way and all of that. And I don't know that that as a project has been successful at all. I mean... (laughs) If if we, if what we see in the media is any indication, you know, there are a lot of pastors who've put a lot of energy into trying to control people's moral behaviors who have failed on a moral level in profound ways themselves. And so I think that project of saying, let's give people a law by which they can live so that they might be saved, Jesus fulfilled the law. And so we don't hear people talking about Christian freedom nearly enough, that you're actually just free people. It's not about maintaining a sort of particular moral code. Um, It's about being loved people. Like loved people are free people. Like look at the difference between a child that's just been profoundly loved and accepted their entire life. How do they act as opposed to a child who's not been loved and accepted but given lots of rules or told that they're a failure and that they aren't worth anything. They act completely differently. Yet we think the law is going to save us on some level. When really, being just profoundly loved people and accepted people, uh, you actually make good choices about yourself
0: this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Nadia Bowles-Weber. She's the founding pastor of the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado. Mm-hmm. We're discussing her new book of essays, Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People. I want to stay with this notion of freedom for a minute because <clears> uh, I think that that's a very powerful image and your image of the child that's been loved and the way that that child acts, I think that's that's very powerful. So when we talk about Christian freedom, we're not talking about complete license. Am I correct? We're not talking about anarchy, the, the ability to just do whatever and, and live for ourselves. You're talking about a very particular type of freedom here.
1: Well yeah because I mean we th- there's the fancy theological term for what you just described is called antinomianism which is there though there's just no rules at all but the fact is like if there were no rules at all society couldn't function so clearly there's a sort of guideline for 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 functioning in the world and then we also have and then people you know have what they call like God's law, right? But God's law is very similar I think to what what we see in terms of society needing to function. Like I was taught my whole life that the the 10 commandments were about the fact that look, God loves you and wants you to be happy. And so the 10 commandments and all these other rules in the Bible, it might seem like you're not having fun like all the other people, but it's only cuz God loves you and wants you to be happy. But then later I I I learned that the 10 commandments aren't about that. The 10 commandments are about God loves your neighbor and wants to protect them from you, right? So I think that there's a sense of like of like yeah, man, of course we shouldn't steal, we shouldn't lie. There's a way in which functioning together as a people works best if we if we all live by certain guidelines. Now, is that going to earn your salvation? Is that going to in some way make a difference between uh in how God sees you? No, I think that that work has been done by Jesus. And so we, because we're not earning our salvation, because we're not on some behavior management program to make ourselves worthy of God's love, you know what we're free to do? We're free to love God and serve the neighbor, which is what this is supposed to be about. It's not a law that you have to do it, but boy, when you're not putting all of your energy into trying to be a good enough person to be loved by God, you have so much energy to love God and serve your neighbor.
0: Now, when you start to talk like that and when you start talking a lot about grace, you're going to make some of my evangelical friends nervous. Um, they're going to respond, I think. Um, well, let me just give you an example. Just this morning, I, an old friend of mine, a fellow by the name of Aaron Simmons, who's actually been a guest on this show, I was on Facebook with him and realized that uh, he had had a moment of a little while ago where his pastor had taken him to coffee. And, and just a little bit about Aaron, he identifies as a Pentecostal Christian. Mm-hmm. He's also a postmodern philosopher. Cool. And he brings, cool
1: be, he brings
0: both those <laughs> things to, to everything that he does. Awesome. And, and, uh, but his pastor invited him to coffee and, and basically said, it's time for your family and you to find a different church. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of times when, when, we, when we experience the kind of intellectual freedom that my friend Aaron wants to mm-hmm. pursue – or the kind of soul freedom that you're talking about—the mm-hmm. freedom to be there for a neighbor—it um, can make it can make certain types of Christians, certain types of believers, very nervous. And um, I like very much the phrase that you used a few minutes ago about it being sort of a behavior control program at certain times, and that we we need to be careful of that. Because you speak so frankly about addiction, because you speak so frankly about about your own struggles, because you speak. With such frank language in your book, Accidental Saints, about the struggles that your parishioners are having, I think that there may be some who would be made very nervous by that because they think that Christianity is about appearing to have it all together. You seem to want to say that it's uh, it's a very different message that the gospel of Christ conveys. Well, is that correct?
1: It's very ironic if you actually read the gospels. I mean, Jesus never looked around the room and said, "You know, who has their act together? Like, who's the most clean cut here? Never uses bad language. Understands who I am. Has all their theology together. Is like the the cleanest cut person here." Because I think I think I'll go send them to do my work. Are you kidding? No, it was like rank fishermen and prostitutes and tax collectors and people who didn't get it, you know, and the and like you know, demoniacs and I mean he had this like rough group of people around him as his as his crew. And then like he dies, raises from the dead, sends to heaven, and then we build a church built on, hey, if you're gonna really follow this guy, the important thing is you be clean cut and have your act together. (laughs) It's insane. It's insanity to me. And the thing in this behavior control program, it doesn't work. Because I think when we when when our emphasis is, is on law and not gospel, it actually creates sin. Because look, if you were raised in a in a church where you got the message through all of your devotionals and your camps and all of your Bible studies as kids that look, God created chocolate and god wants you to enjoy chocolate but only at a certain time in your life and under a certain situation now we know chocolate's delicious and it's very tempting but it's very important that you never wear t-shirts that are going to make somebody else think of chocolate you need to make sure you're not in a you're not watching movies that have people eating chocolate in them i mean they're like obsessed with chocolate to the point to where you're like oh my gosh <laughs> I got to get some chocolate. (laughs) I'm going to order it on the internet. I'm going to like, you know, I'm going to like snort chocolate. I'm going to, if there was an Ashley Madison for chocolate, man, I would be on it. If every message my entire life that I got was how dangerous chocolate is. And that's the way conservative Christians treat sex. It's insane. It's like the moral boogeyman that's hiding behind every corner and every zipper. (laughs) And it create my, here's my theory. That obsession with controlling people's behavior in that particular way has created more unhealthy sexual behavior than it's ever prevented.
0: If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Nadia Bowles Weber. She's the founding pastor of House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Accidental Saints, Finding God and All the Wrong People, published by Convergent in 2015, and the New York Times bestselling theological memoir, Pastrix, The Cranky, Beautiful Faith of a Sinner and Saint. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dahl. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, listeners. I just wanted to let you know about a new podcast that I'm launching with Emily Grassley from the Field Museum. It's called Divides Aside, and it's science and faith in conversation. This podcast is about laying down differences and finding new ways to understand each other. In these deeply personal conversations, me and Emily talk about our ways of seeing the world and why they they so often come into conflict and why we so often disagree. But as the episodes unfold, suspicion gives way to a growing friendship. Listeners get a chance to glimpse the difficulties and rewards that come when we put our Divides Aside. You can listen to it on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at DividesAside and on Facebook.com, also at DividesAside. Please do listen in. We'd love to get your feedback. We'd love to learn how to do this better. And we'd love to share this conversation with you. Thank you. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dahl. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Nadia Bowles Weber. She's the founding pastor of House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Accidental Saints, Finding God and All the Wrong People, published by Convergent in 2015. And she's also the author of Salvation on the Small Screen, 24 Hours of Christian Television, published by Seabury in 2008, and the New York Times best-selling theological memoir, Pastrix, The Cranky, Beautiful Faith of a Sinner and Saint, published by Jericho in 2013. She's been featured on the BBC World Service, The Washington Post, NPR's Morning Edition, Moore Magazine, The Daily Beast, and CNN. You can find out more at her website, NadiaBowlesWeber.com. .com So if you were to succinctly say what you understand the <laughs> gospel go- what, what 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 is the gospel <laughs> what's the fundamental message of the gospel if you were to boil it down and let me give you my my example so the famous theologian Karl Barth was once asked when he was doing a tour of America, an interviewer asked him, so, you know, can you, can you say the gospel in one sentence? And he sort of smiled and said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. <laughs> you know, this famous theologian that wrote all these volumes mm. distilled it down to that one thing. What animates your core theological being? Is there one phrase or one verse from Scripture that you come back to again and again? Jesus wept is a big one for me because I think mm. I make the man cry a lot. <laughs> but I wonder what it might be for you.
1: I think one of the ideas I come back to again and again is like, you are who God says you are, just in the fact that we have so many competing messages all the time about who we are and what our value is. And um, so there's this issue of identity that I think about a lot. And what does it mean to have an identity that's really based in your belovedness to God and the fact that um, you're a child of God? So that, that's the thing I sort of return to a lot.
0: You say at one point in the book, Accidental Saints, that our demons try to keep us from the people who remind us of how loved we are. Mm-hmm. And, and that just came out in what you were saying, that the core identity that you think about a lot is this notion that we are, that we are loved and that we are who God says that we are. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to connect those two and, and see if I've got this right. If we were to say who God says we are as our personal motto, it would be, I am loved and I'm beloved by God and I'm, and I'm worthy of love. Mm-hmm. Have I heard that right?
1: I think so, and in, in that there's nothing, and that that's a done deal, that, that it, it's not because of anything you've done or not done, it's because of God's nature, so that's an important message, I think.
0: And so, why, why do we screw up that message so because,
1: often? Because because um, it's just grace is so hard to accept because if it's real grace, it stings like if meaning like if it's if it's really something you're getting that you don't deserve, you didn't earn it, then it makes you realize how much you didn't earn it, right? So, sort of like being loved well can sting in the sense that it reminds you of all the times that you haven't been loved well or you have not loved well yourself. And so that's why grace is difficult. We'll always turn to law instead because um, at least the ball's in our court. So at least we know... We've earned something. If we, can, if we can justify ourselves through the law, then at least we know it's something we've done. It, it doesn't feel good to, um, to just receive something that you didn't earn. You know?
0: I, was, I was raised an atheist. I didn't have any, any background in faith. And I was in my late teens, so 19, 20 years old, and I encountered a, a hymn Uh, In the Episcopal hymn book, it's hymn number 458, uh, and the, the first stanza goes, My song is love unknown. My Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? And I hear very much in what you're saying that we're in that existential moment of asking that question, what am I that God would do this for me? And your answer is, you don't have to be anything for God to do that to you, that God's already done that for you in the person of Jesus Christ. Have I heard that correctly?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I love that line about, um, like, we become love when we are loved. Yeah. Right? And that same with, that's been my experience with grace as well. The more I sort of realize how in need I am of God's grace and how much I've received it, the more I'm able to be somebody who gives grace to others. It's really not out of my goodness. It's not out of some sort of like I've progressively sanctified myself through right behavior and a good prayer life into being somebody who bears grace in the world. No, man, I'm somebody who's received so much of it that it just comes out of me and it has nothing to do with my own virtue. So and yet, Again, most of Christianity is like, well, how can we, you know, how can we make sure we set up a program so people know how to be good Christians in the world? It's like, man, you're just like a subject, you're subject to it, you know? You're, I mean, it's a there's a passivity to it. And then you're created into somebody who bears that into the world. For that's, I mean, think, you know, God loves this world so madly and that God needs, for people to be in it who can bear that, not out of their goodness, but out of being people who's, who have just simply received so much you can't help but, but be a fountain of it.
0: If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Rev. Nadia Bowles Weber. She's the founding pastor of the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado, and we're discussing her new book of essays, Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Well what I'm hearing and what you're saying is is sort of a, a a fissure between the concept of niceness and the concept of kindness. Oh yeah. So when I...
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm not nice.
0: <laughs> the way that I describe myself sometimes to my children is that I'm not a nice person, but I yeah. try very hard every day to be a kind Me person. Too. And mm-hmm. so it sounds exactly. like exactly yeah that exactly. it's it's not something in our being that makes us so good and light and airy, uh, but it's a it's a it's a concrete chosen action on a day to day basis. Yeah. Am I hearing that in what you're saying? Yeah,
1: I mean and sometimes it doesn't even feel chosen. It's like I I mean I'm, you know I'll end up being gracious towards someone and it's not even what i am feeling in the moment but it's it's like it's never out of my own goodness it truly is not and yet i have been in situations where it's come it's flowed out of me um but that's because it's not i'm not the source you know i really
0: would like if you could to kind of flesh out what that means so what is it about the gospel that knocks you back and and rearranges you behaviorally or internally
1: well, like this like I can't go into the details it's just too soon but um I really messed up something with I didn't contact somebody who I should have about something that was in the book and um and I'd been dreading getting a message from them when they read it and it came two nights ago and and I just said it was cowardly of me to not tell you I was writing about this and it's true like I could have said I could have defended myself I could have said like Well, there were all these situations going on, and here's why, blah, blah, blah. And that, I could have done that, but like instead, somehow I just said it was cowardly of me, and I was wrong. And this person was so gracious. We had this beautiful exchange, and we're going to have coffee when I get off tour. That the fact that they were able to extend grace to me, and I was able to not be defensive, all of that to me, that's a result of the gospel, right? I mean, because we're so confronted by the fact that, man, this this good news and this forgiveness is for us, and it's for every single person who we think don't, doesn't deserve it. It's even for people who've hurt us. It's even for, I mean, all of it. Like, I talk about you know this forgiveness for Adam Lanza. Even nobody wants that to be true. Nobody. I mean, I can't stand that idea. But like that's why I say the gospel is like the worst good news I've ever heard in my life because I don't, I don't want it to be for everyone. But that's why it's so powerful. If it was selective, it wouldn't have the same power. And so being confronted by that over and over again um changes me and um like I was just I I would stop writing about this if it would stop happening to me I swear to God would. <laughs> but it's just over and over and to me it has to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ just being lived out by God's people in ways that just feels mysterious and beautiful and uncontained to me
0: you this gets back to the the things that we were saying about about um, being versus thinking and uh, and and theology versus practice. I've in a lot of the the interviews and articles that I've read in preparation for this interview, I've heard you describe yourself and be described as theologically conservative and socially progressive.
1: And I'm, I'm a unicorn. <laughs> Something that doesn't exist in reality. (laughs) A mythical combination of things. (laughs) Because because
0: normally what what you find is that someone who who cares a lot about social justice issues doesn't care about the liturgy. Someone who cares a lot about about, about the the right practice of worship tends to be very restrictive and restricted in their thinking about social issues. So when you think about the right practice of the gospel— what is it that animates then an openness to these others? And you've, you've talked a little bit about it already in this conversation, but I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit because I think it's an important thing to talk about.
1: Well, I think all those categories are just silly, like about like conservative and progressive and and liber- I, I know they're kind of useful as signposts, but like we just get way too attached to them and then mm-hmm. we think it has to be a constellation of things, right? And it doesn't. Here's where here's where freedom comes in again. You can be anything you damn well please, right? You don't you don't you, it doesn't have to be some package that someone gave you, right? So, um yeah, I have like a really, I have like a nosebleed high Christology. And I have a very low anthropology. I have a low opinion of human beings and a very high Christology, but I'm socially progressive. So I know it's a weird combination of things, but you know what? All these people coming to House for All Sinners and Saints, they're down. They're down with it. And I think, I mean, I wonder if there were more spaces that had that weird combination. Um, what would happen in the church. But it feels like we have to take these weird sides that don't make any sense to me.
0: You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Nadia Bowles Weber. She's the founding pastor of House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Accidental Saints, Finding God and All the Wrong People, published by Convergent in 2015, and the New York Times best-selling theological memoir, Pastrix, The Cranky, Beautiful Faith of a Sinner and Saint, published by Jericho in 2013. She's been featured on the BBC World Service, The Washington Post, NPR's Morning Edition, Moore Magazine, The Daily Beast, and CNN. We'll be back in a moment. Earlier in the program we talked about advertising, but there are ways to support things not seen even if you don't have anything to sell. I just wanted to take a moment and give a quick shout out and thank you to our Patreon supporters. Now, if you don't know what this platform is, it's a way for you to regularly give contributions that support our work every time that we release a new episode. It costs you just a little bit, like maybe the cost of a latte a month, maybe a dollar an episode, but it adds up because it aggregates with all the other people and ends up being a nice sum for us. Many of you have stepped up. We've only been doing this for a few weeks, but already the numbers are there, and I appreciate it so much. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, you can do it very easily. Just go to patreon.com. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com, slash notseenradio. Thank you always for listening, and thank you especially for your support. We really do appreciate it. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Reverend Nadia Bowles Weber, and we're discussing her new book of essays, Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People. What you were just saying a moment ago about sort of coming clean about cowardice, that sits for me right firmly in the 12-step tradition. When we're wrong, we promptly admit it. And in my own personal history, 12-step and Christianity sort of play this kind of tandem game of catch. And sometimes it's hard to, it's hard to know where, where the, the, the gospel ends and the big book begins. Mm, me too. And, and, and I'm wondering kind of how if you kept that s- separate or if those two things mix for you.
1: No, I, they mix all the time. I mean, I grew up in the rooms, uh, in 12-step rooms. So, you know, I've been in them since I was 22. And uh, it's where I learned how to be a, a human being. And um, there's so much wisdom in that 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 feels so profound and true and real that I I can't help but think that God was involved in 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 the inspiration of that you know, and it just works with so much in in terms of Christianity too. So, yeah, I have a hard time um, keeping them entirely separate. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, in your book, Accidental Saints, there's a lot of frank discussion about limitation.
1: Mm.
0: And uh, there's one particular essay uh, in which you talk about two people, Amy and Bobby Joe. Mm. And I wonder if, if you'd be willing to just take a moment and tell a little bit of their story for our listeners.
1: Amy Mack uh, was a paraplegic uh, woman who had best friends with another woman named Bobby Joe. Now, a- Amy Mack, um, I, it's really hard to understand how so much sass and sarcasm could have fit in an 85-pound broken body, but it totally did. And on the surface, it looked like Bobby Joe was sort of selflessly taking care of a crippled woman. But the fact is is that Amy Mack, the physical cripple, was taking care of Bobby Joe, the emotional cripple. And, and just watching them be um, love each other and know each other, uh, I learned a lot just about what it meant to love and to see another person. And then it really affected how um, Amy Mac died. And um, at the funeral, Bobby Joe thanked her for so many things, like thank you for making me dance when I didn't want to, and thanks for insisting we ride in the convertible with the top down during the rainstorm. You were right, we didn't get wet. And thanks for seeing and appreciating things people, other people don't notice, like the waiter and the laundry guy, and me. And it was just like, when she said that, I just went, oh my God, I get it. Like, they saw each other. And I, up until this point, had a hard time knowing how to appreciate Bobby Joe because she's so stinking awkward. Like, she just, she laughs um, at inappropriate times due to discomfort, not humor, and then it's hard to know how to respond to that. And I didn't know how to appreciate her because of her awkwardness, but there was this moment during this process of Amy Mack's funeral and sort of seeing all of this that I really had this realization that the reason that I had a hard time appreciating Bobby Joe wasn't, didn't have anything to do with Bobby Joe and it had everything to do with the fact that she made me face something inside myself I didn't want to look at. And I, I, yeah, I have this sort of, I have, you know, sleeve tattoos and I'm, you know, funny and I, you know, have this big personality and all that. But the fact is is like I was so socially ostracized for most of my life because of an autoimmune disorder I had that that made my face look abnormal and and you know, I ate all my middle my lunches alone in middle school. And so there was this sense in which there was something I, I was trying to hide about myself or make up for that I had sort of successfully done that. And and I saw it in spades and Bobby Joe and I didn't want to see it in myself. And there was a way in which seeing and appreciating Bobby Joe allowed me to see and appreciate my middle school self and to, in some way, integrate something inside of me that hadn't been integrated until then. I mean, it's a longer story than that, but it used to be I'd see Bobby Joe come in, I'd be like, oh, gosh, it's going to be hard, you know? And now, honest to God, every time I see her, I think, oh, good, Bobby's here. (laughs) Like last night during liturgy... During open space, this 10-minute time of prayer and reflection following the sermon, I just went and sat by her and put my arm around her. I just love her so much. There was just, there's this way in which sometimes it's hard to love other people because sometimes it's hard to love ourselves, you know, but in community.
0: I want to stay with that for a second because you just, and you just used the phrase a moment ago, you described one as physically crippled, the (laughs) other one as emotionally crippled, and I admit it, when I first read that, I winced a little. and I was like, ah, that word, Ah. Uh, when I first read those descriptions and that word bothered me. And then as I continued to read the story, I I got to the end of the the essay and I was in tears. And this is one of the things that I appreciate about your writing is that because you are willing to use very frank language Mm. and very frank language about limitation, Mm. if we don't speak honestly about the brutality of limitation, Mm. if I'm reading you correctly, we can't really talk about the utter complete awesomeness, and I use that in the technical sense, of the liberation from limitation.
1: Totally. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Absolutely. And the thing and the thing that I think keeps us from, whether, whether admitting our limitations or just admitting our own brokenness and sin, is shame. Mm. Shame is the thing that keeps us from the truth. So we see that in the Adam and Eve story, see? Mm. Because how would that story have been different if when God said where are you, what if they said, oh, we messed up? Mm. Like, we we just we made a mistake, and we listened to a voice other than yours, and we made a mistake, and we're sorry. How would that story of, because then God could be the forgiving, this, this font of every blessing, right? God could be this source of forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation that God wants to be for us. I think that's being in right relationship with God. I, I was taught being in right relationship with God is that you're so good you never have to bother him. Right, but I think right relationship means that like that God gets to be that source for us and to make up for those limitations. So instead, what did Adam and Eve do? They hid. They were ashamed. They blamed other people and they lied. And so when we are filled with shame and don't want to admit our limitations or our brokenness or our sin, we do the same thing. We hide. We blame other people. We lie. Right? We're filled with shame. And so it's like shame is this thing that keeps us from that. It just admitting oh, we messed up. We listened to the wrong voice, right?
0: Yeah. Reverend Nadia Bowles-Weber, I said earlier in the conversation that an essay of yours had brought me to tears. That happened more than once as I read this book, and I just want to say how much I appreciate the work that you're doing and the honesty with which you're doing it, and also that you would let us as readers uh, sort of peek over your shoulder and take part in it. And so thank you very much for being with us today.
1: I appreciate that. Thanks.
0: We've been speaking today with Nadia Bowles-Weber. She's the founding pastor of the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People, published by Convergent in 2015. She's also the author of Salvation on the Small Screen, 24 Hours of Christian Television, published by Seabury in 2008, and the New York Times bestselling theological memoir, Pastrix, the Cranky, Beautiful Faith of a Sinner and Saint, published by Jericho in 2013. Nadia BolsWeber has been featured on the BBC World Service, The Washington Post, NPR's Morning Edition, Moore Magazine, The Daily Beast, and on CNN. You can find out more about her and her work at her website, nadiabowlesweber.com. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios overlooking Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Jean Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com/thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalton, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.